Chapter 2. The Unpromising Peter Takes Over On a quiet stone-paved alley just outside of the Zion Gate in Jerusalem's old city stands an unadorned, two-story stone building dwarfed by the tower and dome of the adjacent Dormition Abbey. Passing a guard reading, this Hebrew, reading his Hebrew newspaper, the visitor proceeds into a renovated room, 25 by 25, whose gothic arches and stained glass windows testify to its origins as a 12th century crusader church. Arabic inscriptions on the walls evidence its subsequent history as a mosque. Visitors shuffle through, some stopping to pray aloud or sing with others in their tour groups. Almost no archaeologist would unreservedly agree with 12th century pilgrims and 21st century visitors, however, that the building stands on the site of the upper room scene of the Last Supper, the place where 50 days later the Holy Spirit descended and empowered the Christian church to spread the message of Jesus Christ to the world. Still, whether at this very place or at another not far from it, something powerful and strange certainly occurred on that Jewish feast called Pentecost, on or about the year 31 AD. Those who were present told a gripping story. First, they heard a terrifying rushing sound, like a mighty wind, filling the whole house. As they looked around in astonishment, each could see what they would later describe to be, the best, to the best of their abilities, as something that was essentially indescribable. It was as though tiny tongues of fire rested over the head of each man, they said. And when they tried to speak, words from languages none of them knew fell from their lips. Some people later scoffed, saying the whole bunch must be drunk. But others who heard them, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Asians and visitors from many other nations who were present for the feast, recognized the languages as their own and were astonished to hear and understand in the fluid outbursts from these ordinary Galileans praises of the works of God. As for the speakers, they found the experience eerie and wonderful, the most exciting thing that had happened to them ever. Whatever it was that took them in that room that day, it completely transformed the tiny circle of very frightened men and women who had cowered there after the crucifixion of their leader, the Nazarene, Jesus, who they now said was not only the Messiah, but a Messiah risen from death, alive, intellectually, scholastically, socially, and above all, ecclesiastically, they were a collection of nobodies, not even Jerusalem nobodies. Most of them came from Galilee, a rustic backwater. Now, out of their hideout on that future quiet alley that poured, they poured, advancing on the temple, fearless, fervid, and imbued with a message that most of the temple's officialdom definitely did not anticipate and would not want to hear. Even the temple itself failed to intimidate them, though the mere bulk and soaring stone of its walls the grandeur of its decor was obviously calculated to intimidate everyone. Chief among its integrities was its sheer permanence. It had stood for 545 years. No one could conceive that in another 39, at the hands of the overwhelming forces of Rome, it would be utterly destroyed. The temple site, holiest area in the holy city of Jerusalem, had been chosen by King Solomon himself, when in about 960 BC he built the first temple there as a home for the cherished Ark of the Covenant and a center for Jewish worship. Solomon's temple was demolished around 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar, who raised the entire city of Jerusalem as well, and carried the Jews off to his own land, Babylon. When the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem in 538, they began building the second temple on the desolate site of the first. Though the new temple was declared complete in 515 BC, it endured the successive waves of non-Jewish domination that followed the surrender of Jerusalem 
to the great Macedonian general Alexander. Now, Jewish rebels seized Jerusalem again in 167 BC and once more dedicated the temple for worship. Then came, Her came Herod the Great, appointed king of Judea, in 37 BC, 25 years after Rome conquered the Holy Land and declared it a client state. Herod, a half-Jew, won his position by serving as advisor, mentor, and confidant to Julius Caesar and his imperial successor, Octavius Augustus, founders of what had now, by now, become the greatest empire the world had ever known. On their behalf, Herod ordered unflinchingly whatever slaughter, of, slaughter or carnage the preservation of peace and good order seemed to require. The massacre of the infants at Bethlehem, marked and mourned by, as villainy by Christians for the next 2,000 years, was an undistinguished incident in his sanguinary record. Not for nothing, however, he, is he known as, to history as Herod the Great. Once he was installed by the Romans as puppet king of the Jews, his spectacular redevelopment program changed the face of the Holy Land, but his mightiest achievement was his magnificent expansion and adornment of the temple at Jerusalem, an architectural triumph that would astonish the world. With huge cut stones weighing as much as 50 tons, he bent the rule that temple area could not be broadened, creating a massive stone platform that buried the form of the mountain upon which it sat. A section of Herod's platform would survive into the 21st century. All, this, all of this history was known, of course, to Peter and the others as they approached the temple, still deeply stirred within by what had happened to them in the upper room. Their conviction strengthened by Peter's strong confidence and impulsive resolve. Recognized by the group as their senior spokesman, and by Catholic Christians as the church's first pope, Peter was certainly one of the two central figures in the tumultuous events that were certainly one of the two, uh, about to unfold. To future generations, especially those with 21st century sensibilities, he would seem like an unlikely leader. He was a fisherman when he joined Jesus, and the Gospel accounts make clear that he was impetuous and hot-tempered, quick to assert his opinions, and just as quick to recant them when they were rebuked. Worst of all, shortly after Jesus' arrest, a badly frightened Peter had flatly and repeatedly denied any connection with him, pretending to know nothing whatever about him. Even after the resurrection, Jesus' last words on earth to Peter were an admonition. Despite these flaws, Peter also had his strengths. He had spent his life as a commercial fisherman, and no one who has seen a commercial fisherman at work would be surprised at Peter's taking a leadership role. Even with the technology of the 21st century, commercial fishing is no job for the faint of heart. Demanding and dangerous, it requires steady nerve, raw courage, great physical strength, and an ability to act decisively and instantly when conditions demand. And those conditions were far worse in the first century. Much of Peter's life had been spent on the open water in tiny boats, dwarfed by the elements, spray-drenched, sails flapping wildly in the wind, waves convulsing his vessel. His hometown, Capernaum, like every fishing village in the world, ancient or modern, mourned with tragic frequency of the drowned, the maimed, and those who went to work and were never seen again. Such was fishing, and such was Peter, the improbable spokesman for this most improbable group of men. From a sea that is a lake came the men who changed the world. Out of the tiny villages around Galilee, sometimes Galilee's sometimes stormy waters, unassuming men and women became the founders of Christianity. The ministry of Jesus focused strongly on events that occurred on and around the Sea of Galilee, called Yam Kinneret today, 
a 40,000 acre freshwater lake fed out of and flowing into the Jordan River, and the only significant body of water in the landlocked Turkey of Galilee. The shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea to the west of Galilee was part of the Roman province of Syria. The sea, or lake, was the economic center of Galilee, an agriculturally rich but culturally provincial district. It was also an administrative center. Herod Antipas, a son of Herod the Great, who ruled Galilee from Jesus' boyhood to a few years after his death, had his palace in Tiberias, a city he built on the lake's southwestern shore. Major roads linked the sea to Damascus in Syria and to ports along the Mediterranean, but the lake itself was primarily known for its abundance of fish, which supplied the local inhabitants with food and was a major export commodity consumed as far away as Rome by some accounts. Sardines, tilapia, also known as St. Peter's fish, and a large kind of carp, called the barbel, were the most common. They in turn fed on smaller fish and on the mollusks that pro proliferated on the bottom of the sea. According to Jewish traditions, the general Joshua gave fishing rights on the lake to the tribe of Naphtali in about 1300 BC, and it had probably been fished by others for many millennia before that. In Jesus' day, the lake was ringed by fishing boats, fishing villages, and 16 harbors, with the important fishing centers of the proper, prosperous towns of Capernaum at the lake's northwestern tip, and Bethsaida Julius, about five miles east, on the other side of the Jordan. The Jordan River marked Galilee's eastern boundary, and Bethsaida Julius lay within a territory called Galantis, roughly contiguous to today's Golan Heights, belonging to Antipas's half-brother Philip. Jesus knew both towns well. His own hometown, hilly and landlocked Nazareth, was about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, not far from another major city, Sephorus. In Capernaum lived four of Jesus' chief disciples among the twelve, fishermen all, the brothers Peter and Andrew, and the brothers James and John. Another of the twelve, Philip, from Bethsaida, Julius, where Jesus visited often. Peter, who had a wife and mother-in-law in Capernaum, and his brother Andrew were part on partner owners of a commercial fishing boat with Zebedee, the father of James and John. As such, recent archaeological excavations have revealed these disciples would have been relatively prosperous men. A large first century fisherman's house containing a sail needle, net weights, and a fisherman's seal recently uncovered in Bethsaida Julius also contained many animal bones, indicating that its inhabitants ate well. The five disciples who came from these towns undoubtedly gave the comfortable, if physically strenuous, lives to follow Jesus. In 1986, members of an Israeli kibbutz on Yam Kinneret, walking on the lake bottom after a drought, discovered a 27-foot-long first-century fishing boat that was probably much like the ones Jesus' disciples used in their trade. The boat, now carefully preserved together with a first-century mosaic depicting a fishing boat found at the site of another ancient village, Magdala, has given us a clear picture of what these craft were like. They typically had a single mast, a square sail supplemented by oars, a curved stern and decks fore and aft on top of which the fishermen could cook if they wished, and under which they could sleep, as Jesus did on at least one occasion. They held crews of at least five, together with the skipper helmsman. Fishing was accomplished by using a parachute-like net, throw net, cast by someone standing on the boat, a dragnet pulled across the sea bottom by the crew, or a trammel, a kind of stationary net, set, net, net trap set up at night, 
The fishermen also use hooks and lines, spears and wicker traps, and frequently sm small ponds in the marshes on the shoreline. Most of the fish caught were shipped straight to a processing center for salting, smoking, or pickling, and thence for export. Magdala, about 8 miles down the Galilean coast from Capernaum, and the home of Jesus' female follow follower, Mary Magdalene, was a major fish processing town with a reputation for boisterous and decadent living. Its Hebrew name, Hebrew name Migdal Nunia, means Tower of Fish. There are 45 references in the Gospels to boats or fishing in connection with Jesus' activities. He preached to a crowd on the beach as he sits in a boat. He instigates, instigates a miraculously large catch of fish for his disciples. He slips off in a boat to pray in a deserted place along the shoreline. Once, as his disciples are on the boat battling a sudden storm, he walks upon the waters of the Sea of Galilee to calm them. And when he sees his brothers, Peter and Simon, and Andrew, casting the net into the Sea of Galilee, he offers to make them fishers of men. Peter's voice, so often in the past raised above the roar of wind and crashing water, now resounded over the throng of curious spectators surrounding and following the apostles. Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, understand this, he cried. Give me your attention. Puzzled, the crowd fell silent. These men are not drunk, as you assume. It is only the third hour of the day. Carefully, methodically, the big fisherman, his hands calloused, laid before his listeners a version of biblical prophecy. Had they read, he asked, the prophet Joel? And it shall happen in the last days, says God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, so that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and that your young men shall see visions, so that your old men shall dream dreams. And I will cause wonders to happen in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. What they had seen and heard in and around the upper room, Peter said, had nothing to do with drunkenness. Rather, he boldly, boldly declared, it was unmistakable evidence that the ancient prophecies were coming to pass in their own time, before their very eyes. And what it meant was this. Jesus, the man whom they had seen crucified, and whose death some among them had cheered, was in fact alive, both Lord and Messiah. Instead of reacting in rage, hooting him down or pelting him with stones, the crowd responded to Peter's explanation in a curious manner. After all, with their own eyes and ears, they had witnessed something unusual and powerful. They felt a deep grief in their hearts, the writer Luke says in describing the emotion that swept through the crowd at Peter's words. They said to Peter and the other apostles, What shall we do, brothers? Peter's answer was simple and direct. Repent, and let each of you be baptized, calling on the name of Jesus, the Messiah, that your sins may be forgiven, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, about 3,000 followed Peter's instructions, were baptized, and joined the apostles' fellowship. Their faith based as it was upon what they had seen happen in their city and in and around the upper room, spread rapidly. They were well liked by the people in Jerusalem, Luke reports, and their numbers continued to increase. And for their meetings of instruction and worship, they naturally gathered where their religious assemblies had always been held, in the great temple. Though Gentiles are barred from all but the temple's outer courts, indeed, violations of that rule were punishable by death, these followers of Jesus and Peter were Jews, and therefore entitled to use the temple for the worship of God. Inside the temple walls were a series of courtyards, each more restrictive than the last. Like the Gentiles, 
women had their own area or court, outside the court of Israelites and the court of the priests. The main sacrificial altar loomed before the entrance to the holy central shrine, which was divided inside into two sections separated by a curtain. In the first section, the priests made preparations twice daily for the morning and evening sacrifices. Beyond the veil and the curtain, in the room known as the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was believed by some to be present still. Only the high priest was permitted to pass through the veil, separating the Holy of Holies from the anteroom, only once here and always aware that a misstep could result in his death. The temple burst, bustled with activity from dawn to nightfall, and not just religious activity. Every adult male among the 80,000 Jews who lived in Jerusalem year-round was required, under the ancient laws, to pay a yearly temple tax of one half shekel each. The value of a shekel remains obscure, but according to the Old Testament book of Exodus, 30 shekels was the price of a slave. There were also free will offerings, publicly applauded bequests and gifts, wood offerings for the sacrifices, and periodic fundraising drives for special needs. In the temple treasury sat trumpet-shaped containers into which worshippers could drop coins. One such worshipper was the widow celebrated in Mark's Gospel, who gave just two small coins, the widow's mite. Jesus, seeing what she had done, remarked that by giving all she had, she had contributed far more than the wealthiest donor. The annual cash flow supporting the work of thousands of priests and other personnel and funding the rest of the staggering overhead costs had long before made the temple an important commercial center. Bankers kept monies on deposit in the temple. The fourth book of Maccabees speaks of private fortunes held there for safekeeping. The Temple, Herod's Legacy in Gold and Stone The redevelopment of the temple in Jerusalem employed armies of workers for more than a lifetime to create the mo monument for a man who would never see its gleaming completion. During the reign of Herod the Great, construction of ornate structures by a multitude of talented artisans boomed in Judea. Their skills, carpentry, tapestry, sculpture, goldsmithing, and stone masonry blended seamlessly in the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem, the religious, cultural, and economic center of the kingdom. Although Herod the Great began it in 20 BC, temple construction continued well past his death in 4 BC and was finally completed by the governor Albanus in about AD 62. According to some accounts, as many as 10,000 lay workers and 1,000 priest managers were employed in creating a structure standing 100 cubits 170 feet, at its highest point, the Temple House, and made from materials ranging from Lebanese cedar to Italian marble. The intricacy and craftsmanship were apparent in such features as the detailed capitals for the 162 columns, the stone latticework that separated the courts, and the solemn inscriptions warning Gentiles not to venture beyond their restricted areas on pain of death. Although prone to exaggeration, the Jewish historian Josephus describes the exterior of the temple as gleaming with gold. The Talmud says Herod was advised against this ostentatious by wise men who said to him, Leave it alone, for it is more beautiful as it is, having the appearance of waves of the sea. All but one of the ten gates, however, were gilded, and there was lavish gold accenting throughout, especially on the temple house itself where 150 square feet of exterior was covered in gilt, the thickness of a coin. The interior of the Holy of Holies was awash with gold. After the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70, so much plundered gold saturated the Syrian markets, most of it from the temple, 
that the value of the metal fell by half. Much of the temple's commerce arose in support of religious ceremonies, in particular the unending rounds of animal sacrifices that occurred there each day. Cat bulls, calves, sheep, goats, and birds were sold on the premises. So many animals were brought to the temple for sacrifice that the entire livestock industry in the area around Jerusalem was said to be devoted to that purpose. Thousands of priests, along with their Levite guards and assistants and hosts of others, were required to keep all of this going. Each priest served a week's duty in the temple, at the rate of about 700 priests a week on a 24-week rotating schedule, with as many as 18,000 priests from Jerusalem included in this rotation. During one during their one or two weeks of service each year, they were entitled to keep some of what remained of the sacrificial animals, particularly hides, which could be sold to boost a priest's income. Under ancient law, they were also entitled to offerings specifically collected for their income, but many priests lived in poverty. Although the taxes and offerings were scripturally required, not all were paid, and there were huge expenses to meet beside the priest's salaries. The sacrifices began at dawn with the solemn killing and butchering of a lamb by priests bedecked in white linen and sashes decorated with flowers of crimson, purple, and blue. Sacrificial ceremonies continued throughout the day, accompanied by singing and cymbal crashing. In addition to the communal rituals, there were privately funded sacrifices, paid for by individuals or families grateful for spiritual favors, seeking benefits, or fulfilling religious vows. A second lamb would be sacrificed on behalf of the community as a whole each evening just before a conclusion of the daily service. Though ceremonies were conducted with reverence, the din raised by hundreds of men at work and hosts of animals in captivity and distress was deafening. Smoke rose from the burnt offerings, the sweet odor of wood flames and roasting flesh mingled with the stench of incinerated bones and hair, settling heavily over the city. An unending river of blood, coursing from the beast's carefully slit throats, flowed away through an elaborate system of sewers and sluices, above and below ground. Despite the slaughterhouse motif, or perhaps because of it, the atmosphere in, in and around the temple was lively, charged with excitement, even joyful. Excited and exhausted pilgrims of all ages and, and descriptions arrived on foot, meeting other travelers, reuniting with family members, setting up camp around the city, singing and praying and weeping happily. During the great pilgrimage festivals, Passovers and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the spring, the Feast of Pentecost seven weeks later, and the Feast of Tabernacles in autumn, as many as 250,000 visitors would descend upon Jerusalem, all under holy obligation to offer temple sacrifices, as singers sang and pipers played, drawn by the bustle and commotion, and eager to see or be seen by the swarms of worshippers, were scholars, soldiers, merchants, beggars, tourists, prophets, and pickpockets, jostling each other daily for the temple platform in what one modern scholar described as a Judean version of London's Hyde Park Corner. In mid-afternoon, Peter and John and the others, not yet known as Christians, and not yet feared or despised by the temple hierarchy, approached the 35-acre temple complex, intending to worship with the other Jews. Surrounded by fellow beggars as the entrance at the entrance known as Beautiful uh, was a crippled man who called out to them, appealing for alms, a handout, much of the population of Jerusalem was dependent upon charity, and the temple was the center of various formal and informal means of aiding the poor. Peter studied this particular beggar intently, 
recognizing him as a familiar man, a man who, aged about forty and unable to walk, was carried daily to the gate by his friends. But there was something unusual about his fierce, desperate appeal that day. John, too, stopped and looked at the man. Suddenly, Peter spoke. Look at us. The man struggled eagerly to sit up, hoping that he was about to receive a good-sized donation. Instead, Peter said something quite remarkable. I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And with that, he reached down, took the man by his right hand, and pulled him up. The writer Luke, trained as a physician, described what happened to the man next. Immediately, his feet and ankles were strengthened. He leapt to his feet, testing them cautiously at first, walking about tentatively, and then he began walking and leaping and praising God. All this happened in full view of the crowds in the temple area. The man, who had spent much of his life begging at the gate, was well known to the temple's faithful, who now saw him leaping about like a child. It was astounding. Overcome with emotion, the man clung to Peter and John as they entered the temple, its magnificent gold-covered facade glowing in the afternoon sun. Joining the crowd, bundling into the area, the disciples and their new follower climbed a broad stairway up to the entrance gate, entering as others who had already completed their business in the temple exited from a smaller gate slightly to the west. Peter and John had been intent on worship, but the excited company around them grew larger as word of what happened spread. They reached an area known as Solomon's Colonnade before they were surrounded by onlookers that, that they could go no farther. Once again, Peter took matters into his own hands, addressing the astonished crowd. Why do you marvel at this? Or why do you stare at us as if we had been our own by our own power or holiness enabled this man to walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Through faith in his name, Jesus' name has given him given strength to this man, whom you see and know. And the faith that is called out by Jesus gave this man the full use of his limbs, as you can all see. Repent, therefore, and turn, so that your sins may be wiped out. The commotion soon attracted the attention of the temple officials. A group of priests, the temple commander, and some of the Sadducees approached them aggressively, pushing through the mass of people, seizing Peter and John, pulling them out placing them formally under arrest, and locking them up for the night. Still, what had happened that day could hardly be denied by those who had seen it. Peter's gripping explanation of the meaning of the man's healing, combined with his urging that they change their lives and follow in the way of Jesus, had a profound effect. Luke calculates that the number of men in the assembly of Peter grew to about 5,000 that afternoon. On the following day, the high priest Annas assembled a 70-member council known as the Sanhedrin to consider what should be done about the growing disruption in their midst. The aristocratic Sanhedrin wielded power not only within the temple and Judaism, but also in the general government. It was designated to administer both Jewish law, for which it was the final court of appeal, but also, to some extent, civil and criminal law as well. The Sanhedrin included a number of Sadducees, members of a party within Judaism, that regarded any reference to bodily resurrection as blasphemously unacceptable under the traditions and beliefs handed down to them from Moses. They were strict in their temple observances, and they enforced severe penalties on any who slipped. Also among the Sanhedrin was a strong force of Pharisees, Jerusalem's other major party. Though Pharisaical would later come to mean strict, hypocritical, and straight-laced, the Pharisees of the early first century were far more lenient than the Sadducees allowing the rules to be bent under certain circumstances 
rather than rigidly applied. The Pharisees, therefore, enjoyed much greater popular support. A third faction, the scribes, were scholars and theologians, guardians and interpreters of Jewish tradition. Because they were highly respected, scribes were often appointed to important offices, both religious and public. None of the factions represented in the Sanhedrin was inclined to take lightly a potential threat to the traditions and order observed in the temple, and they were firmly resolved to find out what the sudden wave of mania meant and to determine how to deal with it. After spending the night in captivity, Peter and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin for questioning, and along with them, the guards brought the man who had been healed. The first question put the Sanhedrin's concern about the disciples succinctly. By what power or by what name have you done this? Once again, it was Peter who rose boldly to the occasion. If today, because of a kindness to a sick man, we are asked by what means he was cured, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is through the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It is through him that this man stands before you cured, and there is no salvation through anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men through which we must be saved. The answer astonished the learned company. Peter and John were both mere fishermen from the back country, uncouth, unqualified, unlearned in the fine points of the law. Did they not realize whom they were addressing in such brazen terms? They were also known to have been among, been among the followers of Jesus before his execution, and here before them was another man, standing bolt upright, walking under his own power, the same man who had languished for years outside the temple. Some, no doubt, had occasionally dropped a few coins in his palm. They briefly dismissed the trio from hearing and tried to figure out what to do. It was a delicate problem. Word of the miraculous healing had already spread far and wide, and there were many eyewitnesses. Issuing an official denial that the thing had ever happened was certainly not an option. The best they could hope to accomplish, they decided, was to threaten Peter and John severely, order them not to talk to any of anyone about this, and especially not to mention the name of Jesus anymore. Satisfied with this plan, they called Peter and John and forbade them to preach about Jesus, to talk about him, or even mention his name. Their pronouncement, however, singularly failed to impress the accused. They owed, they replied, a duty to God in regard to this incident, and that duty superseded their duty to obey the Sanhedrin. Put simply, we cannot refrain from speaking of that of which we have seen and heard. This lawful refusal to accept the Sanhedrin's authority mounted to open rebellion, but by the very nature of their positions, those who sat on the council were keenly attuned to political reality. They knew that all of Jerusalem was abuzz about what had happened, and that many had attributed it to God. Imposing punishment on those at the center of it would not sit well at all. Not for a moment, anyway. The moment, anyways. The frustrated officials once again ordered John and Peter to keep quiet, and seeing no other choice, turn them loose. After reuniting with the others, Peter and John related all that had happened, including the Sanhedrin's declaration that they were to stop talking about Jesus. They then led the group in prayer. The prayer, recorded by Luke as the first communal prayer of the Christians, ended with this plea. Now today, Lord, take notice of the ruler's threat and grant you that your servants may speak your word with all boldness in reaching out your hand in healing and making signs and deeds take place throughout the name of your holy servant Jesus. As they prayed, they remained uncertain about what all this meant, whether they were on the right track. But they received confirmation in an unmistakable way. What seemed a powerful earthquake shook the ground and rattled the building. 
and the apostles and to the apostles it could only mean one thing God had heard their prayers and would answer it. As with any group of people that gathers for a common purpose, the apostles faced immediate, practical needs for organization. By this time, the vacancy created by Judas Iscariot's suicide had been filled. At the behest of Peter, the number of the twelve had been restored, prior to Pentecost, by the simple expedient of narrowing the eligible candidates down to two, and then drawing straws. Matthias was chosen to take Judas's place, partly because Matthias is mentioned only once in the New Testament. On this occasion, someone argued later that the apostles had jumped the gun and made the wrong choice, and that Christ had already chosen the real successor, whom he would reveal on the road to Damascus. Those who had come to believe wanted, naturally, to remain with the others of like mind. That created the need for some kind of ongoing structure to take care of basic physical needs of the growing assembly. Glad to be part of the movement, many of those who owned land or other property sold it and gave the money to others who needed it. One man, Joseph Barnabas, set a particularly striking example, selling a field that he owned, bringing the money to the apostles and laying it at before their feet, before them at their feet. Meanwhile, the group had to contend with the usual foibles of humanity. There are always those who jockey for position and prestige, watching the others carefully for clues as to what they can do to gain attention and favor. Two such members of the infant church were Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple. Having jealously observed the warm regard in which Joseph had, was held after his sacrificial contribution of the proceeds of his land to the group, they determined to, tame the, to de obtain the same status for themselves. After all, they too owned a field. They sold it, and they received quite a bit of money. Too much money, really, to give it all away, they decided. They would keep some of it back, and the amount they gave to the apostles would still be impressive, would still exalt their standing, while they could not run the risk of having no funds for themselves, should it all of this collapse and throw them back into their own resources. Ananias, therefore, took only part of the money with him when he imitated Joseph and brought the cash to Peter, laying it at his feet. Peter, however, had been watching Ananias, and he immediately became suspicious. Instead of praising the gift, he questioned Ananias sharply, asking him outright if, indeed, he had turned over all the profits from the sale as he claimed. When Ananias assured Peter that the entire sum was before him, Peter recognized it as a bald falsehood. Why did Satan fill your heart so that you lied to the Holy Spirit and put some of the money for the land aside for yourself? Was it not yours as long as you owned it? After it was sold, was not the money yours to dispose of? Why did you decide in your heart to act so? You have not lied to men, but to God. Under Peter's rebuke, Ananias suddenly collapsed, falling to the ground. When others rushed forward to help him, they found that he was dead, and they were gripped with fear. They quickly wrapped his body, took it out, and buried it. Three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, came in, unaware of her husband's fate. Peter asked her the same questions. Had they sold the land for so much? Yes, she said. Had they brought all the money to the apostles, as they said? Yes. So Peter dashed Sapphira's hopes for a claim and prominence as well. How can you two have agreed to put the Spirit of the Lord to such a test? Listen, you can hear the footsteps of the men who have just buried your husband coming back through the door, and they will carry you out as well. And just as her husband had done, Sapphira collapsed before Peter and died. The men who had buried Ananias came out, came in, took her out, and buried her beside her husband. The stark fear experienced by those who witnessed the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira was rooted in a belief by some of the disciples that they would not die before Christ returned to earth and gathered up his people. 
Here, though, they had seen the two members of the congregation fall before them dead, and that raised the possibility that others might die before the second coming as well. Besides having it impressed upon them that punishment follows disobedience to the Holy Spirit, the apostles found themselves wondering who, if any of them, would make it through to the end, and what would happen to those who did not. In defiance of the Sanhedrin's orders, Peter and John continued to gather with the others at the temple, usually in Solomon's colonnade, as before. There they continued to attract attention, but by now other Jews had heard of the arrests and the strict instructions imposed by the Sanhedrin, and were wary of being associated with the energetic rebels. In general, though, Luke reports, the people held them in respect, and soon, once again, others were joining them, crowds of men and women, many bringing members of their family who were sick and placing them on beds and cots along the path that Peter customarily took, in the hopes that his shadow uh, or just his presence would heal. And healings took place, followed quickly by widespread reports of these miraculous events, so that Jerusalem was quickly washed in travelers from other towns, bringing their sick and afflicted for help. All of this was observed by members of the Sanhedrin with a mixture of concern and disgust. These simpletons, mere peasantry, were creating a continued disturbance, upsetting respectable visitors, distracting the worship, becoming a veritable magnet for confusion and trouble. Talk was useless, a group of Sadducees decided. It was time to act. They suddenly seized all twelve apostles and arrested them publicly. That, they concluded, would be that. It wasn't. That night, as the twelve huddled behind bars, a strange thing occurred. A figure appeared among them, living, certainly, but not human. What they remembered most was its blinding brilliance. They concluded it was an angel. Powerfully, the figure pulled on the prison door that instantly swung open, the heavy bolts flying. Then the figure spoke. They were not to return to their homes. They were not to flee the city. They were to proceed forthwith to the temple and resume their witness to Christ. Thrilled, frightened, and dumbfounded, they obeyed. Meanwhile, the high priest had convened the Sanhedrin. The questions before the council, he said, was at the, was the disposal of the prisoners. They were now at least in custody. Things had gone well. All twelve had been arrested without incident. It remained to decide. Abruptly, the meeting was stopped. A disturbing report had just come in from the prison. Somehow, all twelve prisoners had escaped. No one knew where they were. It was simply inexplicable. Every precaution had been taken. Guards posted, doors bolted. There must be some explanation for this, but what? Then, as the meeting dissolved into bewildered disorder and baffled members pressed for detail, another messenger burst into the chamber. Where the twelve had gone was no longer a mystery, he announced. They were standing, brazen and defiant, as they always did, in the midst of the temple, openly telling people about Jesus and urging them to follow the way of life he had proclaimed. For the second time, the commander of the temple and his deputies went out and escorted the apostles back before the Sanhedrin. Luke makes the point that they were brought by persuasion, not force, because the people were clearly on the, side, on the apostles' side, and the arresting officials feared that they themselves might be stoned. A high priest sternly rebuked the twelve, reminding them that the Sanhedrin had expressly commanded them not to teach in Jesus' name. They had ignored that commandment, not only for filling Jerusalem with their teaching, he said, but seeking to bring this man, Jesus, his blood upon our heads. Replied Peter, one must obey God rather than man. What he and the others were teaching, he said, 
could not deny they could not deny because they had witnessed it with their own eyes. Thrown into an uproar by the apostles' intransigence, the some members of the Sanhedrin wanted them executed immediately. One man, however, a well-respected Pharisee and teacher of the law whose renown would live long in the future Judaism, took the floor. His name was Gamaliel. After sending the apostles out, he said to the other members of the council, Beware of these men, whatever you intend to do. There had been other movements which people claimed to be somebody, he said. He cited two recent cases, that of a man named Theodos, who had about 400 followers, and that of another man named Judas of Galilee, who also had a large following. After these men died, Theodos by execution, their flocks were scatters, scattered, and their teachings quickly lost all favor with the public. The Sanhedrin should therefore let Peter, John, and the other apostles alone, the practical Gamaliel said, for if this design or this work comes from men, it will be destroyed. But if it is from God, you cannot destroy them. Having seen the favor with the public had received for the apostles and their teaching, the Sanhedrin followed Gamaliel's advice. Although they did not order the men beat, or they did order the men beaten, and told them once again that they were not to speak in the name of Jesus, then they let them go. Despite the beatings, the apostles were at least free. They were also, Luke says, glad that they had been held worthy of disgrace for the sake of his name, and they continued to teach and talk about Jesus, proclaiming him the Messiah, in their homes and in the temple. Meanwhile, they must contend with their own growing pains as a group. In any movement, especially one experiencing rapid development, tensions and fractions are inevitable, and there was no exception for the followers of Jesus' teaching. Two groups, identified by Luke as Hellenists and Hebrews, emerged. The members of both groups were Jews, but they were divided by language and culture. The Hebrews spoke Aramaic, which is thought to have been Jesus' primary language, though he used also Greek and Hebrew. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking, and many of their customs drew from the Greek tradition as well. The Hebrews may have seen the Hellenists as too compromising, and may have favored Aramaic, Aramaic as more patriotic or appropriate. Whatever the source of division, it became a sore point, and the Hellenists repeatedly complained that their widows were being shortchanged by the Hebrews in the daily division and distribution of food and property. Finding themselves so occupied in matters of internal politics that their mission of preaching Jesus' message was impaired, the apostles called a general meeting. They needed administrators, they said, to handle such disputes and thereby give them time to carry out their work of prayer and ministry. Seven reputable men, filled with the spirit and wisdom, would be appointed to that task. The community agreed with the proposal, and seven were selected to serve as deacons, from the Greek word diakon, or ser a servant or waiter. First among them was one named Stephen, who fit the bill precisely. He was filled with faith and the Holy Spirit. Named with him were Philip, who had become a noted evangelist to the non-Jewish world, along with Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. This last man, a Syrian, converted to Judaism. Their names suggest that all seven were Hellenists, and they may have even been leaders of the Hellenist group. Having found a solution to the problem of the Hellenist widows, the apostles were able to pursue their evangelistic mission with even greater success, and the number of faithful continued to increase. Stephen, in particular, was a forceful and charismatic leader, filled with grace and power, Luke says, and working great wonders and signs among the people. Opponents of the movement and doubters attempted to debate him, 
but they could not withstand his the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Irritated and embarrassed, they decided to try to stop him. They did so by reporting to the Jewish leaders, falsely, that they had heard Stephen publicly blaspheming God and Moses. They pressed this trumped-up case with such energy that they finally succeeded in having Stephen arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. At his hearing, witnesses came forward to swear under oath, whilst twisting and misrepresenting his words, that Stephen never stopped saying things against this holy place and the law. They had even heard him claim, they said, that the dead Jesus whom he worshipped would soon destroy the temple and change the very customs that had been handed down to them from Moses. Having heard the charges against him, the Sanhedrin allowed Stephen to speak in his own defense. He had already proven himself to be a compelling debater, and he rose to the challenge. As he began, his face shone with conviction. Luke says, like the face of an angel, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin marked a crucial turning point in the movement that would become, become known as Christianity. He drew a connection between their ancient rites of the temple and the new order of things brought by Jesus, offering the new as the fulfillment of the old. While the rites of the temple were in their time essential, it was absurd to suggest that God, the creator of the universe, would dwell solely in a building made by human hands. He quoted Isaiah, What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord, or what is to be my resting place? Did not my hand make all of these things? The Most High, Stephen declared with authority, does not dwell in houses made by human hands. The assertion directly challenged a continuing role for the temple as the center of God's power and the only proper place for worship to occur. But Stephen did not stop there. Carefully summarizing crucial events in Jewish history from the time of Abraham and the patriarchs to the building of the first temple by Solomon, he emphasized Israel's repeated rejections of men who would, after their death, be hailed as prophets. You stiff-necked people, he said. You're just like your ancestors. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They put to death those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law as transmitted by angels, but you did not observe it. This was more than enough for the infuriated members of the Sanhedrin. They ground their teeth at him, Luke writes. But Stephen went on, adding to the insult by starting upwards, staring upwards intently, his face shining with absolute confidence and declaring that he saw above him the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At that, all pretense of a fair trial failed. Without reaching any formal decision or pronouncing a verdict, the angry officials rushed upon Stephen and ordered him carried out of the city, determined to stone him to death. Four methods of capital punishment have been, had been prescribed historically in Jewish law and custom. Stoning, burning, strangulation, and beheading. Under the Romans, the Jewish administrators had lost most of their authority to determine and punish capital offenses, except for cases of blasphemy against the temple. Though the outcome of his trial was unjust for Jewish law, Stephen's attack on the continued, continuing sanctity of the temple could not have been clearer. Moreover, the Jewish people were under solemn obligation to stamp out evil in their midst by capital punishment when it was required, or to be punished for their failure to do so. The Old Testament laid out in detail the procedure for stoning, and if Stephen's executioners followed it to the letter, they would have taken him outside the city, as required, to forestall the pollution of a, by a corpse within the walls. They would have stopped at an open field that was scattered with stones of the proper size and heft, not too large to throw, but heavy enough to inflict fatal injury. As Stephen's captors stripped him, 
a group of witnesses would have been appointed and charged with two duties. Understanding that they were about to do, they would have removed their cloaks and laid them aside, then approached Stephen, who was still standing, and laid their hands on his head. That symbolic action was followed by the witnesses' second obligation. They would so throw. They would be the first to throw stones, and thereby they would be held responsible if the executioner, or execution later turned out to be wrong at a later time. The remaining details of Stephen's execution can be inferred from Luke's record. He offered no resistance. His executioners picked up rocks from the ground and hurled them at him. As the first stones struck Stephen's body, he raised his arms involuntarily. Once the witnesses had completed the ceremonial stoning, the rest of the crowd joined in to finish the deed, pounding him with stones, opening cuts in his flesh and bruising his face and head. Bleeding heavily as the stones continued, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and fell to his knees under the hail of rocks. The brutal plummeting went on. Then in a loud voice he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. With that, he lapsed into unconsciousness and died. Finally, seeing no sign of movement in his battered body, those in the crowd let the last stones drop from their hands and walked slowly back towards the city. The disciples recovered the corpse and buried it in great sorrow. Stephen thus became the first Christian martyr. His unflinching sacrifice is still commemorated in the names of thousands of Christian churches, schools, cathedrals, monasteries, and hospitals around the world. Standing beside the pile of locks, cloaks shed by the witnesses, another young Jew had watched Stephen's execution with keen interest. His expression indicated a fierce hatred for this sect, a resolve to exterminate it and its threats to the whole mission of Israel and its people. The disciples knew little about him, except that his name was Saul.